Uh, well, uh, the Oxford School, did it exist? Well, um, I wasn't close enough to know, but uh, I don't think I can hold all of those. <laughs> it's, uh, my taser as a general secretary are over. Yeah. No, well, it's... Uh, uh, my connection, as I say, was uh, much more tenuous than uh, even Willie, who denies any involvement or responsibility. But uh, uh, for Hugh Clegg and Bill McCarthy, I have a special thanks because they both helped me to become a trade union official. Uh, so my thanks to them, and if there was an Oxford school, to the Oxford school. We're here to mark the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Donovan Commission. And I'm going to focus on the Donovan Commission. And in particular, I'm going to focus on the Donovan Commission's effect on collective bargaining. Of course, Donovan did much else, but I think the effect on collective bargaining was its most important work. Um, as Andrew said some time ago, I mean, uh, uh, times were different then. Um, the Donovan Commission was very much part of its, very much of its own time. And those times were very different. I mean, we had what we used to call a mixed economy then. Not quite sure what happened to that. Full employment was expected to continue with the obvious effect on the bargaining power of working people. Um, the differences between the interests of workers and employers was acknowledged as a fact of life. And of course, Alan Fox described why in his very elegant research paper before he had second thoughts on that and a number of other things. Uh, collective bargaining was encouraged positively as a sensible way of reconciling uh, these differences and of uh, settling pay and conditions. And it was generally accepted that trade unions had a legitimate role in representing working people and that their views should be taken into account by companies, by all employers in fact, and by government. I mean, those assumptions were part of the politics of the time. And this was the post-war consensus in all its certainty. In fact, I've looked at some of the evidence that was given to the Donovan Commission, and it's very interesting how few of those pieces of evidence from all sorts of places actually questioned those sorts of assumptions. When the Wilson government set up the commission, uh, there was no indication either that it wanted to challenge those assumptions. What Harold Wilson seemed to want was some solution to the problem of very low productivity in the British economy and a way to stop unofficial, usually called wildcat strikes. So the intention was quite, was quite narrow. Uh, the conflict, and it's been referred to by several people already, that took place in the Commission uh, was whether uh, the problems of British industrial relations, which uh, after that golden period immediately following the war, uh, was regarded as wonderful, and then we began to see how threadbare certain aspects were, was whether the problems could be settled within the existing voluntary sector, system, sorry, or whether there needed to be legal regulation of a rather substantial kind, more legal regulation, because the idea that um, 
industrial relations was not regulated anyways is rather foolish. Now, as we know, and um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, some of the things that uh, George and Willie have said have explained why, the group led by Hugh Clegg on the commission won. And they won overwhelmingly. The voluntaryism system uh, was uh, held to be the right way forward. And that was largely as a result of the paper, again already referred to, that Hugh Glegg wrote for the Commission. It uh, was threatened, if I remember, to become a minority report. So it had a certain amount of negotiating power behind it. And uh, it became uh, a large part of Chapter 3 of the report. Now, Clegg made the famous distinction between what he called the formal system of industrial relations and the informal system. Uh, I sat somewhere in the middle of that, so I'll add a few personal experiences. The formal system, uh, not much remembered now, was that great infrastructure of national negotiating councils where employers association represent, uh, associations representing companies across an industry met a consortium of trade unions to discuss paying conditions and to determine procedures for resolving disputes. There were scores of such bodies. I remember uh, a document produced called the Handbook of Industrial Relations and lists after lists of national negotiating councils, joint industrial councils, covering everything from uh, shipbuilding to coffin making. Now, I never managed to get onto the coffin-making JIC, but I'd sit, sit on the illustrious veneer and plywood joint <laughs> industrial council. And believe me, as I know, I sat on many others. Uh, long meetings characterized by cold tea and no biscuits. I have to say uh, that these meetings tested my vocation to the limit. <coughs> there were narrow arguments about the retail price index, not the best uh, measure of inflation, but that's the one we had, and pay rates in similar industries, comparability. Discussions about investment or productivity, those discussions were impossible because the companies on the other side of the negotiating table were in, all in competition with each other and they were certainly not going to put on the table any information that they thought had some commercial value. So it's e easy to see why Clegg and colleagues on the Donovan Commission were not particularly impressed by this process, disenchanted even. And it was in, very easy to see the uh, advantages of the informal system based on plant bargaining, where shop stewards could settle real life issues with their local manager. It was flexible, full of energy and relevant. And as has been said two, three times already, Alan Flanders, of course, gave the whole process of plant bargaining an added luster by his uh, uh, book on the uh, productivity bargain, the productivity agreements, as he called them, uh, at the Fawley refinery. I thought, Willie, you were going to tell us a little bit about what happened after Alan had written the book. But perhaps someone can ask you that question. It was quite an interesting answer. Anyway, given this obvious difference between the formal and informal system, it's not surprising that Donovan 
was very strongly in favour of a development of the informal, the plant bargaining system. And they indicated in all sorts of ways that that's where the future of British industrial relations should really lay. All this was about private companies, and some of us were rather surprised that so little was said about the public sector. Uh, I made this point to Bill McCarthy, I was very young and very stupid then, um, and argued that there was also a lot wrong with industrial relations in, for instance, local government or the health service and so on. Uh, I was with Derek Gladwin, also mentioned, a very good friend of Bill and my senior colleague, so I might have been showing off a bit. But Bill explained to me with that characteristic mixture of patience and irritation <laughs> that I'm sure some of you will remember and recognise that quite a lot of the report was relevant to the public sector, but, and then the irritation, uh, the problems that the Commission had been set up to deal with were in the private industry, and of course that was the focus of the report. And he didn't spell this out, but it was pretty idiotic of me to think otherwise. However, after Donovan, of course, national bargaining continued unreformed in the public sector. Uh, so perhaps I got my finger a bit close to the lesion. But in private companies, the Donovan report signaled a major change. And I think the extent of that change has tended to be underestimated. Certainly the importance of that change has, in my view, as I will now argue. Now, I've, say, I've been told that the move from national negotiating councils to plant bargaining would have happened anyway. And it's true that some companies were very uncomfortable with these great national rituals. However, in my experience, the big companies were always wary of pulling out of the national negotiating councils for fear that they're going to lose influence. And of course, many of the medium-sized and smaller companies were very keen to hold on because they provided so much support to their actual industrial relations efforts, small as it generally was. In fact, in my view, the trend away from national negotiating councils was quite weak until Donovan gave it fresh impetus. After Donovan, modern managers, I put modern in capital letters with lines underneath, started asking why, whether these national negotiating councils should have a more limited role or whether they were needed at all. And over the next decade, stage by stage, from shipbuilding, construction, papermaking, food, textiles and the rest, the national negotiating councils lost their authority and began to crumble away. Some survived, like the JIB in electrical contracting that Howard's been studying, and some had to be created, the large site agreement in, the, in construction. But most of them stopped meeting quite so regularly, and gradually they were quietly abolished, unloved, and mostly unlamented. The reaction of the trade unions, I'm sharing the blame here, was clear cut. Uh, negotiating at national level meant that shop stewards could be involved in bargaining instead of being uh, rather irritated and irritating outsiders complaining about the process and complaining about the outs outcome. So plant negotiations meant more trade union cohesion, by and large produced better results in terms of paying conditions, 
And sometimes, not very often, but sometimes there were sensible discussions about production and investment, an exception, I think, though. Some trade union leaders, as you know, built a strategy around this change. I mean, the most obvious example is Jack Jones, who challenged TNG officials to devolve power to shop stewards. And my own general secretary, mentioned already, started talking as if every local negotiation was the uh, opportunity to negotiate a wide-ranging productivity deal. It became a bit of a pain after a time, I must admit, but uh, that was the, uh, the feeling of the time. And I must admit, for a time, the change was a great success. We did well in pay and conditions negotiations in the private sector. And looking at that uh, graph that Andrew put up, during the next decade, trade union membership increased by about a third. TNG claimed over 2 million members. And by the end of 1979, my own union was expecting to pass a million, 1979, an important turning point in trade union and political history. My union never got to a million, and by the end of 79, TNG membership was falling sharply. Looking back, I wonder why we were so short-sighted. Short-sighted about the value of these national negotiations. Of course, they were slow moving, they were frustrating, they were time consuming, and of course, the tea was cold. But we forgot the benefits that they brought to the trade union movement, and they were very extensive benefits. They sustained the belief that pay and conditions should be settled by collective bargaining rather than by other means, and they taught managers that industrial relations meant working with trade unions. Every one of those national negotiating bodies produced a little agreement booklet. And on the front page was a list of the trade unions operating in that particular sector. There was no need to demonstrate the legitimacy of those unions. The evidence was in black and white on the desk of every personnel manager. In the 1970s, those benefits seem to be of little importance. But of course, it looks rather different now. During the, uh, during the, uh, thank you, during the 1980s, many of the comfortable assumptions that underlay the Donovan Commission report were swept away. Ah, and of course, as many of the plants where collective bargaining was at its strongest closed down and new workplaces opened and there was no authoritative national agreement in place, managers discovered that they could make up their own minds about whether to recognize trade unions and to bargain with them. And not surprisingly, many managers decided that they preferred unilateral decision-making. And looking back, there's a feeling, in spite of that 10 years of success, that Donovan threw out the baby with the bathwater, and trade unions like, trade unionists like me, 
looked on approvingly. Uh, no doubt the decline of trade union membership and of collective bargaining would have happened anyway. But I'm sure that if we'd have held on to those national negotiating institutions, we would have been in a better position to resist the attacks and modify the processes that we faced over the last 20 years. And why am I so confident in saying that? Because I look with envy across the channel at many of the North European countries where trade union membership has certainly fallen, but where they've held on to their national negotiating structures, the infrastructure, if you will, of collective bargaining, and uh, their collective bargaining coverage is very much greater than ours. And where the trade unions are social partners play a much more significant role in industry and in national life. So as with so many things, I don't think we realized the value of these things until we'd given it all away. It may have been an understandable mistake, but unfortunately, the consequences were enormous, and I think some of them have been tragic. Thank you. <laughs>